welcome to Let's Meet the Virologists, a podcast about the people behind today's virology headlines, people working to understand viruses and how they affect you. We are talking with virologists, students and postdocs that belong to the American Society for Virology so that you can learn who they are and what they do. I am Larissa Thackray, and I am hosting this podcast from America's heartland in St. Louis, Missouri. On November 19th, 2021, we talked with Taylor Engdahl, a graduate student in the Crow Lab at Vanderbilt Vaccine Center, who is isolating and characterizing human monoclonal antibodies against new world hantaviruses. Thanks for uh, talking with us today. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, um, I was born in Washington State. My dad's actually in the military. So we did move around a ton, um, but I was born there. Then we moved to Monterey, California, and then we moved to Maryland. So I spent most of my time um, living in Southern Maryland, um, and that's where I went to college. So I went to college at a very small liberal arts school in Maryland. Um, it's called St. Mary's College of Maryland, and that's where I got my uh, bachelor's. And then I came straight from undergrad into uh, the interdisciplinary graduate program at Vanderbilt. And that's where I am now. Okay. And how did you first become interested in sort of studying science? How did that happen for you? Yeah. And I, I've been thinking about this too, and I'm not, I'm not quite sure. I think part of it was probably because it was one of those things that was very interesting to me like I always loved reading about it and it came very easy like it made a lot of sense like math never really made a lot of sense to me physics never really made a lot of sense but chemistry that always clicked and and biology always made sense um so I think that's why I pursued it um my my parents my mom um uh stayed at home with us um and then my dad, uh, like I said, he was in the military. So he did aerospace engineering and flew planes. Um, so he was always really into science and he kind of instilled that into us as well. Um, but he did, again, more like math and physics, which was not my thing. Um, and so I think I was just always really intrigued Um that was always kind of the books that I wanted to read were about like nonfiction about science. Um, and the classes that I always enjoyed were about science. And then I went into undergrad, like most people um, who weren't quite sure what they wanted to do, but like type A personality and wanted to help people. Um, so I was like, I'm going to be pre-med. And um, so that's why I was a, yeah, a biochem major and I really liked that and then later I found out that I did not want to do pre-med and so um yeah I think I don't know cool and I guess then can you kind of tell us a little bit then sort of as you were finishing up your undergrad how did you choose your graduate um school and then sort of the lab that you ended up in uh, so it's it's probably a lot of it is serendipitous um my graduate program I, I really wasn't sure what I was going to do un after undergrad, but I was kind of terrified of the job market. And I thought that for the type of position I wanted, I would probably need some sort of postgrad degree. Um, 
So my advisor was just like, you know, most of the applications for grad school are free. You could just put out some, go on interviews, like see how you feel about it, like have that option open. Um, so I was like, okay. And I just kind of applied to a bunch within like a couple weeks because um, that was kind of close to the deadline. And Vanderbilt had a free application. I had barely even heard of the school before, um, but someone that I was interning with the previous summer, um, he, uh, he did his graduate work at Vanderbilt and he really liked it. And so that was just kind of, that's why I was on my radar. And then it was a free application. So I was like, why not? Let's just try it. Um, and I went on my interview with Vanderbilt and they were just so organized, like the program, the program has been around for a little over 20 years. It's an umbrella program. So you go in, you learn about a lot of different things um, and you get to rotate through a bunch of different labs and you don't have to commit to a specific program. Um, and so that's kind of what I applied to because I really was not sure what I wanted to do at all. Um, and so Vanderbilt's was definitely the most organized umbrella program that I experienced throughout my interviews. And everyone was just really nice. And the people that I met with, their research sounded interesting and they were very nice and they were super into like career development, um, which I liked. And the city seemed fine. I had never been to Nashville. I had never been to Tennessee before. Um, so yeah, that's kind of how I ended up at Vanderbilt. Um, and then, like I said, I really wasn't sure what lab I wanted to be in or what kind of research I wanted to do, I actually came in wanting to do cancer immunology. And I, so I started grad school in 2017. Um, and I feel like that was probably like the peak of that. I think James Allison won the Nobel, like maybe the year after or something. So it's kind of the peak of like the hype of cancer uh, immunology. And I thought it was just the coolest thing. Um, and so that's why I came to Vanderbilt for, and that's kind of what I thought I was going to do is some sort of cancer immunology lab. Um, but then I was at a poster session and I saw, um, Ebola on a poster and I, back in probably in middle school, my dad had given me the hot zone by Richard Preston. And I had read that. And like, ever since reading that, I've always been the person that's like, we are going to we're like, there's going to be a pandemic, like, we all have to prepare, like, this is, this is going to be big, like, um, you know, just, it was always something that was really scary to me. And I thought it was, it was, it was really cool. Um, obviously, the hot zone is very sensationalized and dramatized, whatever. But I think the main point is there, like, and now we, these things happen. Um, and so I had always been interested in that, but I kind of put it away, because I, there wasn't really a lot of virology research at my undergrad and the internships that I did, there was no real opportunity for virology research. So I just never really got into it. Um, but it was always something I was interested in. I had always like tracked, like I followed like who and everything and like tracked like the Ebola outbreak in 2014. Um, and so I saw that on a poster and I was like, what in the world? Like there's no BSL for here. How are these people working on Ebola? And so then I went to talk to them and then I found this 
crazy big lab um, that is the Crow Lab, which is, um, yeah, my thesis advisor is Dr. James Crow. Um, and so we're in the Vanderbilt Vaccine Center. Um, and I was just, he's the kind of person that can kind of sell ice to Eskimos. Um, so I met with him and I met with some other people in the lab and I was totally sold. I was like, this is so cool. This is really interesting. I had no idea that you could work on these pathogens, um, without BSL three or four access. So, and yeah, and that's kind of how that all happened. Great. And can you tell us then a little bit about the research that you've been doing? I guess maybe talk a little bit about sort of the bigger questions and then maybe some of the techniques that you all use to answer those questions. Yeah, so we are, the general gist of the lab is characterizing the human antibody response to different emerging pathogens. Um, And we're very interested in um, either being kind of the first to discover antibodies to certain uh, underserved pathogens or describing new classes of antibodies, new types of antibodies. Um, And this is basically for either to be used as therapeutics. So a lot of our um, antibody candidates that we've isolated and characterized um, have been picked up by companies um, to be used as therapeutic candidates. Um, And then it's also the larger idea is to inform vaccine design. Um, So if we know what the good antibodies are that people elicit to different viruses, um, if we know what those are, then we can go back um, in terms of reverse vaccinology. So go from understanding what the good immune response is and then go back to the vaccine and look at the vaccine and say, how can we elicit these really great antibodies that can protect uh, people? Right. Um, Can you actually talk a little bit about that? So I guess um, you'll probably get into some of the assays that you use to study, but what is reverse vaccinology? (laughs) Yeah, so we, um, we have a massive repository of uh, what we call PBMCs or peripheral blood mononuclear cells. So basically your immune cells um, that we can get from the blood. And so we have human um, B cells from donors of almost every kind of infection that you can think of. Um, So we have it from Ebola and Zika and Nipah and all different types of flu and now SARS-CoV-2 and even viruses that have only infected one single person, we have B cells from them. And so what we can do is we can then look through all of those B cells that are in people's blood and then find antibodies from those B cells um, that are either specific to the pathogen that we want. And then we can further narrow that down into, okay, what are the best antibodies uh, that we can find to this specific pathogen that we're interested in? And hopefully the antibodies that have protected that person, that survivor of that infection. And then how do you use that information to sort of uh, do the reverse vaccination to inform a better vaccine? Right. So um, we're kind of seeing this right now with SARS-CoV-2. So the mRNA vaccines uh, that are currently used, um, they are a specially designed spike protein. Um, So there's two different versions. There's a 
pre-fusion form and a post-fusion form, and they look drastically different. Um, and so most of the time, what you get out of um, uh, when, if you were to just make spike proteins, a lot of them would be in this post-fusion form, and that's kind of useless to the immune system. It can generate antibodies, but it's kind of a after the virus has infected form. So if you're trying to fight that form of it, it's not really gonna work very well. So what they found was uh, specific mutations that you can make in the protein to keep it locked in this stabilized pre-fusion form. And that's what they use in the vaccine. And that it's still kind of questionable if um, you know that is really important. That's really important for other pathogens like RSV, um, which is in clinical candidate um, testing right now. Um, but it's kind of unclear uh, as to whether or not that was super important in SARS-CoV-2, but I think it is really important and why we saw such high uh, efficacy because we were able to use um, our educated knowledge about the spike protein and design the stabilized form. And then we can elicit these antibodies that hit the stabilized form um, and not have to worry about all the kind of garbage antibodies that would hit the post-fusion form. And so that's what we're really interested in is using, again, finding these really great antibodies and then figuring out exactly where they're binding on these proteins. Because a lot of these times the proteins come in a multitude of different forms. Um, you can have different subunits or portions of the protein that you could vaccinate with. A lot of viruses have multiple different proteins on the sur surface of the cell that could be targets. Um, so you have to decide what, what which uh, kind of protein on the surface you're looking for. You have to look at what form of it. You have to see if uh, a lot of the time they just don't express well or um, they're in a specific, what we call like quaternary form on the surface of the virus that's really hard to kind of recapitulate um, with a recombinant form. Right. So can you tell us a little bit then sort of, sort of some of the tools that you use to get this information? So what kind of experiments are you actually doing? Yeah. So for antibody isolation, we actually have a lot of different tools in our toolbox. This is our lab's forte. Um, so we, we do two different approaches for that. One uh, is called the human hybridoma method, um, where we take B cells, human B cells, and fuse them with a um, human mouse myeloma cell. And then it makes a hybrid OMA cell. Um, and it basically has the uh, antibody genes from the B cell and then all of the machinery from the myeloma cell. So it just becomes like an antibody pumping making factory. Um, and then we can use antibodies from that. Um, so we can use that method to isolate antibodies. And then we also are now working on um, more sequencing based and single cell methods. So we can look in a tube of B cells, we can sort them out into what B cells bind to our specific pathogen that we're looking at and what B cells don't and throw the ones that don't out. And then we can sequence, single cell sequence all of the B cells that do bind and then get the genes from those, the antibody genes from those uh, B cells that we sorted and then um, make antibodies from those. So that's kind of our antibody production method. Um, and then 
further down, we kind of do a lot of high throughput assays in order to, again, like whittle down into the antibodies that we're really interested in. Um, so most of the time we want antibodies that are potently neutralizing against our pathogen. So we do a lot of neutralization assays um, to downselect. We do a lot of binding because a lot of time binding also correlates with um, neutralization. We do animal experiments. Most of those are outsourced with collaborators. Um, we work with people uh, that have VSL three and four facilities at UCAMRED. Um, we work at uh, WashU a lot, um, uh, UTMB, NIH. Um, so we outsource a lot of our animal experiments, but that's also really important to whittle down um, to see what antibodies are protective in animals. And then kind of further, once we have our best antibodies, if again, we want to try to inform vaccine design and further characterize where these antibodies are specifically engaging with the pathogen, then we look more towards structural biology and epitope mapping um, assays. So we have a uh, cryoelectron uh, microscopy specialist in the lab. Um, and we also have an x-ray crystallographer in the lab as well. Um, so we can look at the structures of our antibodies in complex with the viral antigens. And again, to see where these antibodies are engaging and kind of what sites we really want to expose the immune system to elicit these. Right. And can you talk a little bit about how you sort of target the immune system, say from a vaccine to specific epitopes? So how do you use things like glycan masking or other techniques to kind of focus uh, the immune response? Yeah, yeah. And uh, glycan masking is really cool. And it's, it, I think it's cropping up a lot in flu now. Um, so I think we do have some flu projects going on in which uh, if we're looking towards say universal flu vaccine, that's another thing that we're really interested in is um, trying to design vaccines and find antibodies also that can cover a whole family or a whole group of pathogens instead of just one specific pathogen. Um, and so if we're looking at like universal flu vaccines, um, a lot of the antibodies that we elicit are towards the top part of the HA or hemagglutinin. Um, and again, we, we know this, we've characterized a ton of antibodies that are to this top part, but that's pretty variable. So that's not really where the broad ones are going to be. So what we can do is we can put a bunch of glycan and the virus already does this too. They can, the viruses will add uh, not to anthropomorphize, but the viruses can mutate to add glycans to the surface and then block off these antibodies. Um, and so we can do the same thing in which we add glycans to um, specific regions that we're not as interested in and we don't want to drive the immune response to that because it's going to naturally go to that. And then we can expose and leave open other sites um, that might elicit a more broad response. So then kind of further down on the HA, there's that stem region. Um, and so if we want to target that and drive the immune response to that, we can just block it with glycans, which is, yeah, that's a really cool kind of vaccine design trick. Right. Um, in addition to kind of the stabilizing mutations um, that I talked about for Spike. Right, right. Um, and then could you talk a little bit about, so I guess in the current sort of pandemic, 
I have to say I've been somewhat underwhelmed by our use of monoclonal antibodies. So that has not panned out in the way that I sort of envisioned, uh, maybe partly because the mRNA vaccines were so fast that sort of the role of monoclonal antibodies has been a little bit um, uncertain in this, in this pandemic response. So can you talk a little bit about that? Like how does that experience sort of inform where you, you and like the Crow Lab think sort of the niches for monoclonal antibodies? Yeah, I totally agree. I, it has also been a little underwhelming. The problem is, is that monoclonal antibodies are great um, at very specific times in the infection. Um, so they're great at prophylaxis and preventing infections, and they're great at the very early course of the infection when you can still kind of tamper down the amount of virus um, in the body and kind of prevent any problems or symptoms. Um, but a lot of the times when we are using them for COVID is when people would come in really sick, show up at the hospital, and then you don't really have a ton that you can do for them. Um, so one thing is monoclonal antibodies. But at that point, the real problem is that, you know, their, their lungs are full of virus and breaking down and there's a lot of inflammation and that kind of issues. And at that point, I, tamping down and neutralizing the virus with antibodies in your blood, that's going to help, but it's not really going to help stop your lungs from filling with fluid and, and, um, kind of prevent, prevent these like severe symptoms that you already have. So I think a lot of the problem is how we're using them. Um, and so in the most ideal situation, um, it would be best to use them early in the course of infection. And so that's where, again, like I guess our Swiss cheese model, if we have all these things in place, antibodies is just one tool of that, but you need things like regular testing so that as soon as someone um, gets a positive test, and even if they don't even have symptoms yet, that's when you really want to use them and when they're going to prevent um, a lot of symptoms. And so our lab actually, um, has licensed uh, uh, antibodies for the treatment of COVID with AstraZeneca. And so the therapeutic, I guess, niche that those are filling is for immunocompromised patients. So again, this would be before they were infected um, with SARS-CoV-2 and we can't give these people vaccines. Well, we can't give them vaccines, but they can't make their own antibodies. Um, so this is where they're very useful because we can basically just, we have our best antibodies. We've already picked them. We've already decided we already know they work. And instead of trying to get them, their body and their immune system to make, uh, their own antibodies, which they just can't because of some sort of immunocompromising status, um, we just directly give them those antibodies. Um, and we can also make these so that they're long lasting. So again, the benefit of vaccine is that it's going to protect you for, for months and then sometimes in the case of some vaccines years. Um, but we can make these antibodies really long lasting um, by engineering them slightly. And then they can basically play the same exact role as a vaccine in which instead of training your B cells to make antibodies, you just already have the antibodies and they'll last for a pretty long time and it'll help protect you from um, getting COVID-19. 
Um, so I think a lot of the problem and, and again, the barriers are going to be costs are going to be having proper testing in place, um, are going to be having, um, uh, access to healthcare for a lot of people, which a lot of people don't have. Um, that's the other issue with antibodies too, is that a lot of them have to be transfused through an IV into patients. Um, which can kind of limit their utility because a lot of people just don't have access to IV infusion sites, especially if we're talking about um, pathogens that affect really low income areas. Um, but again, they're working on a lot of that technology. We can now do um, intramuscular uh, injections, which is awesome. That's just like a vaccine. You come in, they pop your arm and you get antibodies, which is great. Um, so, I mean, I think it has, I think it's been really amazing for research um, because the field has just moved really, really far. And there has been a lot of kind of pushing the, the limits and making better and better antibodies and making them intramuscular injections and making them long lasting and kind of taking care of some of these issues that we have with them that make them less accessible. Um, but yeah, it's only really gonna work if you hit it early. Um, and that's also another um, thing. Sometimes we, we got a bit lucky with the SARS-CoV-2 vaccine in that we did it very, very quickly and people were, um, you know, just an amazing scientist who made this and um, they worked tirelessly to make this happen. But there was a bit of luck in that we designed it it worked amazingly, like it was super effective. Um, and we were able to do that very quickly. Um, but that's not the case for a lot of different viruses. Um, so for a virus that maybe would be more difficult to design a vaccine for, um, this could play a much larger role in limiting the spread by giving people antibodies instead of, um, Again, we were kind of lucky that we had the vaccine to limit the spread, um, but they're just kind of like another tool in the toolbox. So they're still very useful, um, but I think there is a lot more um, that we need to work on in order to make them more accessible um, and uh, useful for treating a lot of different pathogens. Yeah, I mean, I'm actually wondering if, you know, some of the complexities, obviously, of trying to get people protected as fast as possible. And so the very short um, sort of interval between sort of the prime and the boost with the vaccines, if you had actually had a system where you knew that you could give the vaccine and the monoclonal at the same time, could we have actually had a much longer sort of interval between your two vaccines and sort of, you know, been able to go eight weeks or 12 weeks or what have you, which now data is showing it's actually better intervals, but you would have had potentially monoclonals either on board as um, pre-exposure prophylaxis or at least held in reserve as post-exposure, right? And so you could potentially sort of have longer term, but I think because we didn't really have those widely available, it was like vaccinate, vaccinate as fast as possible to try and get the levels of antibodies up, right? Right, right. And there is a lot of research um, going on in the co-administration of antibodies and vaccines. So again, you get protected while you're generating your own immune response. Um, and then we can also make antibodies that are mRNA encoded 
So you could just take mRNA and it would give you the antigen and it would give you the antibodies, um, which would be really cool. But that's still kind of preliminary. Um, there's not like a lot uh, going further just because we don't know how um, a lot of that would interfere with you um, generating your own immune response. Right, right. Cool. And um, so I guess thinking sort of in the medium term, long term, what are your plans after your PhD? So I, I started in 2017. I joined my lab in 2018. So I've been here for, I think about three and a half years. Um, so I am tentatively graduating in uh, probably spring of 2022. So next spring. Um, and I've been trying to figure out where I want to fit in um, to the whole science world. Um, again, I kind of went into grad school because I didn't really have a clear goal um, for what kind of job I wanted or what kind of job I wanted to do. I just know I like science and I wanted to help people. Um, so it seemed like a good option. Um, and it has been a great experience. Um, but uh, now I have to kind of rubber hits the road and I have to actually decide what I want to do. Um, and so there's pros to pros and cons to staying in academia. I'm not sure if I would enjoy being a PI and staying in academia. I feel like I have a pretty good grasp on what that looks like and what kind of life that would be. Um, and I'm not sure if that is for me. Um, so I've been looking more into um either, uh, obviously I'm very interested in pandemic preparedness and even before the COVID-19 pandemic, I was always the one that was like, we really need to do something. Like flu is gonna knock us out any moment, like any year, it's gonna be really bad. Um, so I've been looking at a lot more um, either project manager positions, working with either institutes or private or government um, and just organizing um, different or nonprofits in the pandemic pandemic preparedness space. Um, I have also been very interested in science communication. Um, another thing that has become very evident um, in the past, I guess, 16, 18 months, however long we've been in this, is that we are really, really great at the science. We have done so many incredible things in science. Again, the mRNA vaccines came so quickly. We've got tons of antibodies. We've got all these tools. We've got amazing tests. We, we just have a ton of different tools that we can use to fight this, but it's been so difficult to get either funding for these from the government um, or from private funding sources. Um, and it's been really, really hard to get the public on board. And, and it makes sense. It's a scary time. And it's really scary when people, you don't really know what's going on, or you don't have people in your life to explain to you um, what vaccines are, what they're doing. And everything's just, it's really hard to get information these days with the internet. Um, so I think I'm just realizing that I feel like we've, we've got it on lock with a lot of the science and there's a lot of incredible people that are doing incredible science. And I, and I think we are really good at that. Um, but I think the communication part is something that we are not as amazing at. And if we want to, again, we're just kind of stuck at our vaccine uptake at this point in the country. Um, and I just feel like if there were more voices and 
more scientists who are willing to um, really thoroughly explain things, communicate things, change the narrative um, on how we explain science and how we talk to the public about science. I think that would be really helpful. And it's very clear that, you know, it's great if we have these things, but if we can't get the public on board with using them or taking them, then they're kind of useless. So yeah, so I've been I've been thinking more about kind of the science communication side and if there's some way in which I can help kind of use the knowledge that I built over my grad school career um, in that space. So cool. Well, very interesting. Um, so we look forward to uh, finding out what you do in the future. <laughs> uh, Me too. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, good luck and uh, nice talking with you today. Yeah, thank you so much. This has been Let's Meet the Virologists, a podcast about people who study viruses. This is your host, Larissa Thackray, and thanks for listening. You can find us on Google, Apple, Amazon Music, and other podcast providers or at lmtv.podbean.com.